All right, welcome everyone. Uh, we have Sean Baker as our guest of honor today, and uh, he's joining me in this podcast to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on nutrition, particularly on maternal and child health, and also to talk about nutrition financing. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. So uh, welcome, Sean. And uh, so let me start off with this question. How has is, how is the COVID-19 pandemic affected malnutrition in, or affected children globally? even broader than that. Well, first off, thanks, Professor Mehta, for having me. I've really enjoyed the time at uh, Cornell today, even if it was virtual. Um, I think the COVID pandemic, to my mind, I've been working in nutrition for almost four decades, and I would say it's probably the biggest shock to global nutrition that I've certainly experienced. Because of the nature of the pandemic, every system that families rely on to nourish their children has been disrupted at the same time everywhere. So health systems are being disrupted, ability to deliver services, people's willingness to access those services, people's livelihoods have been disrupted. So their ability to purchase nutritious food, their ability to access healthcare has been undermined. The food system itself has been disrupted, even though generally the staple side of it has held up, prices have increased, but there's been often disruptions of the nutritious parts of the food system, which are often more perishable parts and certainly more expensive. And in light of the increases in poverty, et cetera, normally social protection programs can provide a buffer, but social protection programs could not expand to accommodate the increased needs. And then that's topped off by the need for humanitarian assistance, even if not linked directly to COVID has increased and even the ability to deliver these essential humanitarian assistance has been compromised because you, you're balancing how much you need to provide services with trying to reduce transmission risk. So it's been really a shock across the system. And on top of that, there's been the shock to the whole political economy of nutrition. We've been historically, I think, since 2008 on a relatively good trajectory of increasing political attention and financial commitments to nutrition, but faced with the multiple priorities created by the pandemic, there is a risk that leaders around the world uh, see nutrition as something we can wait on. It's a second order impact. Okay, well, that was nice to do while we could, but now we need to get serious about controlling the pandemic. And I'll come back to that because it has implications for the other part of your question. Now, because of the nature of nutrition and multiple sectors being hit at once, it was difficult to even project what would be the impacts. The, the best estimates have been from a group that comes together of multiple research institutions uh, coming together as the Standing Together for Nutrition Consortium that have tried to project through modeling of decreases in health services and uh, increases in wasting, uh, decreases in quality of diet, et cetera, what are the, the potential impacts? And I say potential because I also like to remind people that projections are important, but projections are not destiny. That one of the reasons we do projections is we try to actually keep them from coming to pass. But those projections are pretty grim uh, in terms of looking through the 2020-2022 period, an increase in number of children suffering from wasting of about 9.3 million. When you increase that number of wasting, 
when you combine that with the decrease in coverage nutrition services that could translate into almost 170,000 additional deaths from, um, from undernutrition, which is pretty devastating. And that's reversing a lot of our gains. Longer term, because you will have more women who are suffering from anemia, more women who are suffering from low body mass index and children being born from women who've had less good nutrition, you're going to increase the burden of stunting in the long term, uh, probably by about 2.6 million children. So really reversing a lot of the gains we've seen, while the gains have not been adequate, there certainly has been a, 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 a positive trajectory of decreasing levels of wasting and stunting, and we could be losing all of that. Um, so that it, the projections are pretty grim um, and children dying right here and now and co generational consequences because those kids who are born with deprived nutritional status, even if they survive malnutrition, we've undercut their future potential. So there will be generational consequences. And that comes back to also, it's projected the additional financial needs required to mitigate those impacts would probably increase the global requirements by about $1.2 billion a year. And we're already short on meeting the requirements to deliver on the World Health Assembly nutrition targets. Hey, thank you. And that is indeed very devastating. And uh, you know, and that comes on top of, you know, despite so much evidence that investment in nutrition is the best down payment for future development, it remains chronically underfunded, as you highlighted in a recent blog post as well. And how, what do you think is holding different sta stakeholders back? And how do we get this additional $1.2 billion that might be needed on top of that? Good question. Um, you know, you and I are trained sort of as technical people, but then and often we look at what are the technical issues, you know, what are the, what, what are the technical problems that lead to malnutrition. But I actually have learned over time to step back and look at what to me are really the root causes. And I summarize the root causes as orphan, invisible, unmeasured, and voiceless. Um, and then I'm gonna add a fifth, very specific to the pandemic. So orphan because now, who owns nutrition? You go into a country with a high burden of malnutrition. Is it a health sector issue? Is it a food systems issue? Is it social protection? Is it the food industry? Who's on the hook to deliver good nutrition? Well, of course, we know we need all those sectors to work together. Governments are seldom set up to actually have that strong political prioritization and effective collaboration across the sectors. Uh, then invisible, um, you know, in the public's mind, when you talk about malnutrition, people usually see this severely wasted child who needs treatment for life-threatening acute malnutrition. And of course, that is a reality in many settings and it's tragic, but most malnutrition is not visible to the eye, be it deficiencies in essential vitamins and minerals, or, you know, uh, if, if you're in a if you're in a community where almost all children are failing to grow to standard, having kids who are too short for their age, that's just the norm. Nobody sees that as malnutrition. So it's not something that hits you in the face the way a measles outbreak or an HIV pandemic does. Uh, that invisibility is exacerbated by the measurement challenges. And you know, we were talking about some of the measurement challenges around micronutrient status, uh, which are very difficult, uh, also very difficult to, we don't do a good job of quantifying diets, et cetera. So if we don't have good measurement, 
we don't take it meaningfully. But that leads me to the fourth, which to me is the most fundamental driver, which is the voiceless. Those moms and kids, the most risk of malnutrition are those who are least likely to have any voice at the table of any decision-making. That certainly is one of the headline uh, messages from the third Lancet Nutrition Series that some of the most important distal causes of undernutrition are all the social inequities. And it is both a a product of that inequity, but it also contributes to that inequity for the reasons we started off with. Because if you're, if moms are malnourished during pregnancy, giving birth to malnourished children who survive malnutrition but still don't have, you know, we've undermined their uh, physical and cognitive development, you know, we're setting them up to be less successful, which just rebuilds that whole cycle of malnutrition and poverty. So on the other hand, breaking that cycle in equity and poverty really can be transformational and nutrition can help to deliver on that transformation. So to me, those are the four root causes. I think in these pandemic times, there's a second, there's a fifth cause that I think is important that even the way we've talked about nutrition globally, it's like, oh, it's a secondary impact of the pandemic. And I think it, almost sets decision makers' minds up since it's difficult to juggle lots of things. It's okay, first order of business, get rid of the virus, second order of business, get the economy back on track. And then maybe when we have a little spare time and a little spare change, then we'll start dealing with nutrition. The devastation on the nutritional status of moms and kids is happening now. It started happening the second the pandemic hit having immediate impacts on increasing mortality. And we know that those kids who survive malnutrition, we're going to have a whole cohort, a whole generation of children who've been malnourished during, pregnant, during gestation and early childhood, and we're not gonna get that back, right? So nutrition cannot wait. And I don't think that most decision makers have understood that malnutrition is not some second order or third order impact of the pandemic it is a clear and present danger from the day that the pandemic hit us. And we really need to get our message about that. Absolutely. And you, know, uh, and you mentioned that there are so many public health programs and you know, so many other causes of uh, poor maternal and child health, particularly among children. There are so many you know, overlapping kind of syndemics that are going on at the same time in a way. And nutrition obviously is intricately tied to all of these processes. So uh, you know, we, uh, we talk about different programs where we are delivering vaccines, we are delivering different other public health interventions. Is there a role for community workers, for example, to play in this area? Is, are there ways to build synergies across these different public health programs that will give us kind of you know, more bang for the buck in the long run? Yeah. in this context? I think to me, one of the most uh, inspiring parts of this pandemic have to see, have been to see not in, not in person, but <laughs> through virtual conversations, the degree to which particularly community health worker platforms have been able to maintain services. And I think community health worker platforms are probably one of the most important interfaces between the people we're serving, the moms and kids we're, and their families we're serving and the health system. And supporting them to deliver essential life-saving nutrition services is probably one of the most important things we can do. 
And do they have a role? I would say they have an absolutely essential role. And it's, again, one of, I think, the incredibly strong messages that comes out of the Lancet Nutrition Series of what they call the missed opportunity, or I think the opportunity gap, I call it the missed opportunities, which is, I think, missed opportunities on multiple fronts. If you have, let's say you have to have a measles a vaccination catch-up campaign. You're only delivering measles. Now that frontline worker's time is delivering one thing. That mom's time who's spent time to come to that, to get her child vaccinated is spending time. That same contact, you could be providing vitamin A, deworming and screening for acute malnutrition. And the fact that we're not doing that, we're not, we're, we are wasting the time of moms I say moms, it could be other care providers, but in most cases it's mothers. We're wasting time with those frontline workers because they are, they're not providing actually these relatively straightforward interventions, which have triple wins. They're providing more satisfaction to the client and the health worker because you know, they're, they're, you know, we all like more services rather than fewer services. They're making much more efficient use of the mom's time and the health worker's time. They're increasing, I mean, at the end of the day, why do we vaccinate against measles? I'm not picking on measles, it's just the case. I mean, to save kids' lives. Well, if we can amplify life-saving, what, that's to celebrate, right? So there is a real neglect of these life-saving nutrition interventions in the health system, and that's been quite well documented. On the other hand, it's been documented about how well you can deliver. I think a case in point where I think I happened, I think it was my last, yes, it was my last field visit before uh, we went on lockdown was in Nepal where the health extension platform is just wonderful and the extent to which they have maintained high vitamin A coverage, good coverage of iron and folic acid tablets for pregnant lactating women. You know, we, there, there's, there's a huge amount of evidence that these health workers can be totally transformational in providing good nutrition services and not at the expense of anything else, but also other life-saving interventions. So. Yes, absolutely. And it's almost, I would say, public health malpractice if we're not optimizing these contact points. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I really appreciate the role of community health workers and you know, one of the transformational experiences and even my training was working in community health service projects and seeing how much integration can come, up, come about. Uh, I will uh, ask you a question that I asked you during the seminar as well. And uh, just once more that uh, you mentioned that this is a make or break year to keep nutrition promises to mother and mothers and children. So what can you briefly tell us a little bit about what efforts are on the horizon from 2021 onwards, anything that's personally something really high priority for you and what you see as high priority for other organizations? Right. And let me start perhaps to give the context of why I say it's a make or break year. Um, I mean, as you know, having worked in the nutrition field, we suffered many decades of neglect, I would say. And that, that trajectory of neglect started to change back in 2008, I think driven principally by a really robust uh, assembly of the evidence uh, in the first Lancet series on maternal and child undernutrition, but also that political economy analysis, which basically slapped us all in the face and said the global nutrition system is broken. That's led over time to, I think, a repositioning, a recognition that nutrition is incredibly important. What do we do? What's the, what part of the population would you focus the most on, the, uh, that thousand day window for mothers and children? 
what does it cost? And more and more evidence of being able to go to scale. And then in 2013 was the first time where we really started to get serious about financing for nutrition uh, with the first ever uh, Nutrition for Growth Summit in London. Now, there's been a trajectory of continuing to try to improve the positioning. The Scale Up Nutrition Movement has now, I believe, 63 member countries who are committed to acting on nutrition at scale. Uh, there have been increased donor investments. We see some increases in investments from uh, domestic resources of governments, although uh, harder to track. But it's been better, and, and better is good. It's not been good enough. And we were all being incredibly energized going into 2020, which was to be the next Nutrition for Growth Summit hosted by the government of Japan as part of their Olympics year. And then the pandemic hit. And so you've got the impacts of the pandemic itself on nutrition, but that's also why I talked about sort of the political economy impacts because we're going into a situation where we had been on a certain ascendancy. I mean, I would have had liked to have it a much sharper ascendancy, but still better is good. I would like to have better, better. Uh, and I think, but all of a sudden the bar has been raised because we actually, the burden is higher and there are more competing priorities. And there can be a perception that nutrition can wait, which it cannot. And so, and many of those commitments in 2013 actually ended in 2020. So I think that it is a make or break year because we've got to use this pandemic as an opportunity to reposition, re-energize and re-accelerate, if that's a word, the nutrition agenda. I am purposely optimistic and I think we can do it, but I think all of us who work in nutrition and the broader development agenda need to feel the weight of this year on our shoulders. So that was not to avoid your question, it was to give a context of the response. Um, now, clearly uh, we're early in this administration, Our the nominee for the administrator of USAID has not been confirmed yet. So we are still um, you know, waiting on uh, guidance at the policy level, of course. That being said, we benefited greatly from very strong bipartisan support on the nutrition agenda for, for decades. We 50 years of leadership on nutrition from USAID. In 2020, there were unanimous resolutions in both the House and Senate supporting USAID's nutrition agenda. Uh, I think nutrition is something where there has been incredible US leadership obviously from the government, including USAID, but also from academic institutions such as yours, among others, civil society organizations who are, who are really on the cutting edge of uh, innovating for implementation of high impact nutrition programs, et cetera. So I do think that we have a, a hugely strong leadership role in global nutrition. Uh, we are in the process across the US government of two important uh, activities that position us much better to engage with the UN Food System Summit, as well as the Nutrition for Growth Year of Action and Summit, uh, a refresh of the Global Food Security Strategy, which is uh, mandated by the Global Food Security Act, which is our flagship all of US government program to reduce hunger, poverty, and malnutrition, and really focuses on the food system side of nutrition. And then we're updating the Global Nutrition Coordination Plan, which brings together 10 participating departments and agencies so that we use better our technical, convenient, and financial resources to deliver on the nutrition agenda. We've just set up a working group that will help coordinate how we engage with nutrition for growth. I think the 
The other point that I should mention is that certainly the three of the top line priorities coming across from this administration are COVID, climate crisis, and, and equity and inclusion. And as we've, we certainly discussed about COVID and how essential making sure we continue to deliver on good nutrition is to, to preserve lives and futures coming out of the COVID pandemic. I see COVID as a rapid onset crisis. Climate crisis has been, has been with us for a long time and is going to be with us for a long time, unfortunately, and also is going to be undermining every ability to deliver nutrition. And so it is going to drive increasing. And one of the most fundamental drivers of malnutrition is the inequity we've seen and how can we, how can we, how can we support those who are most marginalized to get them the services needed. So I think the nutrition agenda will resonate very strongly and we are certainly in all the planning processes. Now, what we'll be able to deliver, we can't say yet, but I, I think we certainly see that this is a make or break year and we certainly want to work with our partners across the world to make it a success. Wonderful. On that note, uh, I will stop here. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us.